Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back into The Nuclear View. Of course, I am Adam Lowther, along with Jim Petrosky and Curtis McGiffin. And today on The Nuclear View... We have an interesting topic. Now, there is a bill that is under discussion in the House of Representatives, the U.S. House of Representatives. There's uh, member Ted Lieu is contemplating and trying to gain support for a, a piece of legislation that would ban artificial intelligence from launching nuclear weapons. And then... Uh, yesterday, there was an article in The Atlantic called Never Give Artificial Intelligence Nuclear Codes. And so this is really a, a prescient topic. And I think it's particularly prescient because Curtis and I wrote an article in 2019 called America Needs a Dead Hand, in which we explained why an AI-based NC3 system would be a, perhaps an option that we might want to look at in this country. And so we thought we could talk about that and we could talk about the legislation. And with Jim being the engineer that he is, being familiar with artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the kinds of algorithms we're talking about, it's a great opportunity to talk about a, a great topic. With that, Curtis, Jim, uh, let's uh, talk about AI and nuclear codes. Well, uh, thanks a lot, Adam. Appreciate it, Jim. Always good to see you. Uh, let me start off today because I am uh, particularly interested in this. And uh, what, what kicked off here, uh, as you mentioned, the, 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 uh, the legislation, which is called... Um, uh, block nuclear launch by autonomous artificial intelligence act of 2023 long-winded Woo. Um, so it, it is designed to be a bill um, that is looking to remove any possibility by in fact cutting funds uh, federal funds to anything that would be used to empower any sort of AI capability to launch, uh, launch, uh, nuclear weapons. And, uh, and then that was sort of, as you said, uh, uh, mentioned by, uh, this article, uh, by Ross Anderson in the, uh, in the Atlantic, um, which he references our piece, America needs a dead hand, uh, very well, by the way. And I invited Ross Anderson to come on the podcast. Uh, he did not respond. I presume, uh, uh, just, uh, a short notice, wasn't able to uh, to meet with us, but maybe we'll have him on another time. Uh, but it was a, a, a really fascinating piece, and I do I don't recommend a lot of Atlantic pieces, but this one I do, and uh, and and it is interesting uh, because it 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 goes through um, a scenario that senior leaders who are new to this business uh, are tested in their decision making on whether or not they would launch a nuclear weapon, and they're thrown into this situation where. Their ability to get the order um, out to the forces has been severed. 
um, by some sort of cyber attack or something along these lines. And it challenges them as to, well, what alternatives would you do? What would you do? And it's designed to be pressure um, and, and make people really think about the, uh, you know, the impact of just how hard it is, the weight of all of that on your shoulders as a senior leader. And so uh, one of the things that, that struck us as we recognized this back in 2019 when we wrote our article that is in War on the Rocks, and you can certainly find that on the internet today, uh, where we sort of recognize that technology is closing in and it is compressing uh, the attack time, right? And we've, we've seen this over history. We've gone from hours of notification and warning when it was just bombers in the 50s flying over the poles to 30 minutes when it became ICBMs uh, to 15 minutes in the 70s when SLBMs, sub-launched ballistic missiles, became uh, much more prevalent. And now when we're looking at hypersonic weapons and hypersonic glide vehicles, we may be seeing uh, attack times that are much less than 15 minutes. And that's hardly a decision, uh, hardly a safe or, or comfortable amount of time to make a decision. And so these challenges um, uh, can't necessarily complicate our ability to command and control forces uh, of, the, of the nuclear, as part of the nuclear triad. And this is key to deterrence, because if we cannot convey the credibility that under every circumstance, under all hazards environments, that nothing, absolutely nothing will prevent a retaliatory order and the retribution uh, response, if you will, against any nation that would attack the United States with nuclear weapons. That belief, that credibility is key as a cornerstone to successful deterrence, and we must do everything we can to ensure that never erodes. So for us, what, what we sort of said is you had, you had three sort of standard options. You can first, you can put your adversary under the same attack time compression. You know, you can put Pershing threes in, in Europe and you can essentially greatly diminish the response time for the Russians. You you know, you can put weapons in Korea and aim them at China. You, you can do these things. That's one option. And it, because maybe if you compress their time, then they'll back away. That was our thought. Yes. Then the second thing we said was, well, you have to create a very secure second strike. Road mobile ICBMs, rail mobile ICBMs. You have to bury, you have to build hardened and deeply buried facilities that can't be struck so that you can guarantee that you can respond. You've got to put bombers back on alert because right now bombers are highly vulnerable. You've got to do, uh, you know, they, we talk about the submarines. Well, we only have a very small portion of the submarine fleet actually out to sea and in a secure location. The rest of the submarine fleets pretty vulnerable. So we would have to create a very secure second strike. That was the second option. And then the third option was that we have to heavily invest in ISR, integrated or uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. And then we have to develop a policy of preemption such that if we think that our adversaries are going to launch against us, we launch first. We preempt. And we said, those are sort of your three options. 
And there's nothing that we see. And here we are four years later and nothing now is suggesting to us that we're building any of those three options. So therefore what we suggested was, well, you could build an NC3 system that, and we called it AI and we were sort of dead, you know, we were panned for it, you know, that we were going to build Skynet or the <laughs> yeah. Whopper. But, but what we were talking about is, you, you know, the NC3 system is, it's a system of systems. It's a hundred plus systems. And that what you do is you put machine learning algorithms in each of these systems. So you would have hundreds of algorithms that are doing the analysis for you such that you compress the amount of time it takes to, from the detect a launch to the decide what to do to the direct forces, detect, decide, direct, so that we can compress our time and that we can give the president uh, more you know, more time to operate and that his decision space is, you know, cause there's a certain amount of time it, it takes to do each of these, you know, that's a, it's a classified amount of time. And so, but that amount of time is not enough in, in a world where you might have low observable cruise missiles that strike targets. And then you know that they're there or, you know, with hypersonics where you can have four to six minutes and you, they can move a thousand miles in in that last minute. Right. So, but we didn't go into great detail about what that system should look right. like. So Adam, that AI so, system was the fourth option, right? And, and so going back at the, at looking at your, at the options you described, right. The, the compressing their attack time we've already seen is not politically viable uh, because we, we are even having a hard time just funding Slickham N, much less creating some sort of uh, intermediate range ballistic missile capability to compress their timeline, similar to what Reagan did uh, with the Pershing twos and the Glickums in, in 1983 that brought us the INF treaty later on. We know that building, that deploying uh, nuclear weapons in different, in different modalities like rails and, and trucks, also politically uh, challenging. Building new missile silos and burying them harder underground would be a, a huge cost burden um, and likely would never pass muster with the environmental um, uh, rules and, and evaluations. And, um, and we know that a first strike uh, preemption policy, while that worked very well under the Bush administration from the war on terror, um, is probably not appropriate for um, for a nuclear uh, power such as the United States that does not use its nuclear weapons to coerce adversaries. So the fourth option of the AI was really the best option. At least it was the most affordable and probably the most palatable um, until very recently, this sort of goal and and uh, and and fear overall that has been sort of brought out by AI and sort of Elon Musk's recent visit to the Capitol Hill and so forth. So I just want to add a little color commentary to that to your your very fine summary, Adam. Thanks. Yeah. So now it's time to bring in Jim. I mean, he's patiently listened to our sort of introduction. So, Jim, I know you have some strong feelings about AI, 
And we want to, one thing we do want to do before the show's over is sort of take our 2019 article a bit further and sort of offer up how we think you might could do this and get your take on that. But before we do, Jim, tell us what you think about AI. Well, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> and for those of our listeners who don't know where that statement comes from, comes from 2001, a space odyssey where Hal takes over the spaceship. And that's what most people think of as AI. And although that could someday be our future, this is what we're not talking about. <laughs> we're talking about something completely different. And I, um, so, so let me, let me back up a little bit here before I go any further. So back in 2019, when you were writing your document, I'm just looking through my biography here. I wrote a paper called adaptive hybrid redundancy for radiation hardening. And in additionally, adaptive hybrid redundancy with error rejection. And those two papers were about taking software on satellites and building a machine learning system that would allow us to do rejection correction so we could fix the software en route and get back to us correct correctly. And machine level programming and programming in general, a lot of this, uh, this work, uh, can be done by machines. It could have been corrected by people on the ground and take time and interfere with the signal that was coming to us. And so, uh, so I lay that as a backdrop because I look at the AI and the machine level program, which is just a machine language or a, a machine learning program, sorry, uh, machine learning as a subset of the artificial intelligence. We're using programming to help sort out information and sort out signals so that they are best presented to the human being to understand the situation that's there. And that is the piece I think that we're getting lost in, in all of this. In other words, it's another tool. It's a tool in the tool chest to help the human sort out the very complex piece of information that's coming to us. And we do this all the time. When you look at a TV screen, you know, back in the 1960s, when the world was black and white, we saw black and white, but we said we can get better information by adding some color. And we added color and you say, okay, well, yeah, things have color, but let's take a look at things like Jupiter. When you look at a picture of Jupiter, you see a colorized version of Jupiter. You don't see what Jupiter would look like if you're sitting in space, unless you looked at an uncolored version, because the colors enhance things that we want to see. And that is the piece of AI that, and, and, and of, the, of the whole tool chest that gets lost. So I would say we're throwing away the baby with the bathwater in doing this. Now, let me, before you jump back in here, I will have to say, going back to my opening statement about how taking over the computer, I do agree that we need to have a meaningful human in control of the system. But I don't think, I, I don't see anywhere in any of this legislation that's telling us that's that's the only piece that we're taking out. We seem like we're taking, we're pulling the brakes on everything when many of the things that have been tested, colorizing, sorting out information and helping us to understand the situation, to get into our OODA loop and to make it faster in a multi-domain battle space 
that we're going to call the modern battlefield. And I think it's really important that we see that because things are going to happen too quickly if we ever do get into a you know, full peer-to-peer war too fast to be able to make those decisions without someone sorting them out. That's my first take. Uh, so let me let me add to that. Uh, I think that's fantastic, and I love the the Hal reference. I don't think I've seen 2001: A Space Odyssey for 20 years myself. Um, the mission is too at, important for at me least to allow since, you to jeopardize it. At least not <laughs> since 2002, anyway. Um, okay, so I, I love it. Um, I guess what it comes back to again is why are are we all of a sudden so concerned about AI uh, in the nuclear in the nuclear realm. Um, back in in 2020, the NORAD commander um, was saying we need more more autonomous uh, capability, and um, he was uh, directing or requesting uh, requesting that due to basically the same sort of thing that. Uh, that we, we needed to automate detection systems, move humans further out of the decision-making loop to meet the challenge of faster, more powerful weapons. This was General O'Shaughnessy at the time, commander of NORAD. Uh, so he was looking at that. He was concerned about attack time compression while never referencing attack time compression. I fault his staff for not giving him our article. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and when I look at this bill, I ask, well, why is it that AI is, is the issue here with, with nukes? We don't seem to have any problem with AI on the battlefield. There, you know, the Air Force right now is talking about CCAs, Collaborative Combat Aircraft, where AI runs these autonomous fighter aircraft, for lack of a better term. Uh, the Secretary of the Air Force was just testifying about this on uh, to the House Armed Services Committee uh, just this past week. Um, and it's very interesting. Yet these systems are designed to do what? Kill people and break things, right? And what if you put nuclear weapons on those AI, on those AI-driven aircraft? Would, would that be banned by this, uh, by this bill? I'm not sure. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm somewhat convin- uh, unconvinced. I'm also concerned um, by why we continue to uh, to think that if we do certain things like this, that our adversaries will follow suit. It's even in the bill, right? That um, that if we do these, that we seek similar commitments from China and Russia. Uh, we have seen this to not work in the past. Uh, after the 2010 New Star Treaty, the uh, President Obama's 2009 Prague speech, we have not seen adversaries want to uh, de-escalate their nuclear capabilities. And in fact, they are ramping things up. And um, and yet we continue to tell the adversary things that we won't do in hopes that we will somehow deter them. That just does not make sense to me. I view the language in this bill, and I'm going to shock our listeners, uh, this this dad, this bill encourages or incentivizes a first strike against the United States, which I think is exactly what they don't want to have happen. Congressman Liu and all of them, I'm absolutely sure their on their intentions are honorable in this sense, but this bill incentivizes a first strike on the United States. What say you, Adam? Oh, that's a you know, weakness is provocative and I wonder if this is not another 
sort of death by a thousand cuts, particularly to our deterrence credibility. Uh, you know, it just seems that you, you, you know, it's like that shovel, one shovel at a time, you undermine credibility. And I, I wonder if this, and you know, if you think about deterrence, the, the whole idea is that if you go back to Ronald Reagan and the Soviets, the Soviets thought he, he was crazy enough and mean enough that he would nuke them. He scared them. Would Donald Trump, you know, we were primarily focused on the, the North Koreans, and but to some degree, uh, the Russians. And the Russians thought Donald Trump would actually do it. And so when you have leaders that the adversary thinks, man, that guy will do it, and he's not scared. And that that guy will, you know, and this is one of my fears, is there's discussion in the U.S. that... Well, why would we have a, you know, a, a retaliatory strike if we're all dead anyways? Why kill them too? And that in and of it, that discussion and that sort of thinking and that logic undermines deterrence because we need our adversaries to think he'll kill me just for just for the sake of it, just out of pure hate and animosity. Adam, because that that's what makes deterrence are, work. Are you advocating fear? Deterrence with fear? Uh, uh, we're having an, an, an interchanged experience here. Yeah, well, well, you know, I I mean, it does work. And that is what deterrence is, Jim. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with the fear aspect of this. But I, I want to go back to a, a piece I read in this bill. And I, I, I sort of socialized a little bit of this with some of my non-military uh, uh, friends and uh, some people that, you know, are, are counter to our view. And the answer is because nuclear weapons could kill many, many people that – you have to have the deliberate ability to recall at any time. And I thought that was a rather interesting comment. And it goes back to this human, meaningful human control. And that is when there, there comes a point at which you make a deliberate action that you are going to employ nuclear weapons to Adam's point here, that you, once that decision is made, we as a country, and we have processes in place to do that. Once that decision is made and, we, and, and it's out to shoot, whether it's dropping a nuclear weapon, whether it's dropping a conventional bomb, whether it's pulling the trigger on a rifle, it's all the same. The decision's made, and once the squeeze of that trigger is done, it's done. It's going to happen, whether the decision is great or not. Now, I, you know, again, we have processes in place to make sure for nuclear weapons, we have a lot of control on that. And I think that that aspect of this cannot be overlooked that it, that, that I'm not sure anywhere that I read about this bill, that it changes that somewhere along the line, someone's making a decision and it happens, whether it be the dead hand, that decision is being made. And once that deliberate decision is made, then the action is done. And by making that known to our adversaries, we then deter their decision to take an action because they well, know I, we will make it. So when the, when, when the Americans found out about the perimeter system, so the Russian perimeter system, it's not an AI based system. I mean, it's, 
it's a dumb system. So it essentially, you know, once it's cut on, if the, if the Russian, if the strategic rocket forces lose communication with the Russian leadership, then the system sends out, it's in some respects like our old IRCS system, but it sends out rockets and they launch everything. And when we found out that that was existed, we changed our nuclear posture. We were going to target Russian leadership. And then when we found out about perimeter, we stopped specifically targeting Russian leadership. So but, these kinds of systems work. Adam, I, I agree with you. Um, you say it's not an AI system. So what it was was a fail safe, okay, in which, sure. in, in which a signal prompts an action. The, the difference here, and I will say with AI, it, be, it, it becomes a little different because the system becomes more complex in the process. And we do need to have very well-assured systems and control of software and control of hardware that ensures that spurious or malicious content does not get there. That's all part of cybersecurity. But aside from that piece, it's still a fail-safe. It's, no, I agree. So let, let me just give you a short explanation of the sort of the way we've envisioned it. Yeah. And so if, if you take the NC3 system and it is a system of systems and you take, you know, if you take missile warning, for example, where, you know, space-based assets pick up an IR signature, they start tracking it. They tell them, tell the missile warning center, Hey, we think this is what's, you know, this is what's incoming. This is what, you know, we think these are the missile warning tracks. And so, and then that gets passed on after a certain amount of, of fidelity. Our premise is that you would take these human elements and you would write machine learning algorithms that would be embedded into the system for that specific aspect that would, you know, analyze the tracks to make the determination, is this a missile coming our way or is it something else? But it, they would have discrete ability to have influence. And then as you think about this system, that's a hundred plus systems embedded within each one of these are these machine learning, machine learning algorithms that have discrete tasks, but they're faster than the humans that do these things. So you're compressing the amount of time. Now, part of what we de design the system to do, and this is what doesn't happen now, is you would sit down with the president, let's say at the beginning of an administration, and you would walk that president through all of the many scenarios. Maybe you do it two scenarios a day over a hundred days, who knows, but you walk the president through the scenarios and you say, Mr. President, if this happens, what do you want to do? And then you allow the president to make decisions that you can then code into the system. Teach such. Yeah. You can teach the system that the system can do under circumstances, because when the when these systems, let's suppose a scenario actually happens and the president's trying to flee the White House or get into the bunker and you've got weapons going off and you've got people, you know, all hell is breaking loose 
And the president has never practiced this stuff or never thought about it until today. And he's got six minutes to make a decision. That's the wrong time to be thinking about it. And so we envision a system where you methodically think through these things well in advance. So this idea that there's no human in the loop, that's, I mean, the human is, the human wrote the algorithm. The, the human trained the algorithm. The human's everywhere. And then the president's making decisions and thoughtfully making them ahead of time. So humans are everywhere. So, so I, I so I, 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 let me counter that because I, I'll, although I do, I, I, I do understand what you're doing. You're basically training the system with the decision maker, um, and I understand that. However, each of those decisions is based upon an input, typically called a feature for that decision or that activity, and each of those features has to be decided upon. And I'll just give you a couple couple things that do need to be cautioned. I'm not against that. You know, I'm, I'm not saying I, I see great flaws in this, but here are where the people become cautious about this. And the, the canonical example is a machine learning program that was once developed that they tried to show that uh, would work in which they showed a series of photographs to the machine learning algorithm. And they wanted to tell the difference between a wolf and a dog. And so they looked at the pictures and they looked at hundreds of pictures and trained the system and they found the system would, would function very, very well. But then they found that nearly all of the pictures that it pointed out that were wolves were in snow. And so what the machine program was picking up was not the dog or the wolf is the fact if it was in the snow, it was probably a wolf. Okay. And the point, the point of that is that, um, that you must be very careful in which you build this system that the inputs are important inputs that will be made for that decision. Here's where the NC3 system becomes a use, a, a useful component for this because the decision-making process is based on the inputs that we know we are collecting for the decision-making. I mean, we know yeah. what the sensors are. We know, you know how they are configured. We know the timings on those configurations, and they help to provide information. So that, that is a piece where the human in the loop, and of course, the other issue is what happens if a feature comes in that wasn't trained? Where does that, where does that bucket go? Because that does become a problem because your adversary is going to find something that you didn't think about. It's just the way, the way it works in warfare. And we've got to think that piece through. Adam? Yeah, I mean, tra training data, the, the great thing is, is when you have these discrete machine learning algorithms, we've got lots of actually really good training data. We've got thousands and thousands of missile shots that you can train our missile warning algorithm with. So you've got good training data as opposed to sort of, you know, uh, I think it was... It was the Microsoft, the or, you know, from 10 years ago, or the, it was the Google AI that they built 10 years ago where they turned it loose in the wild and essentially, it, you know, it learned to be vulgar and it learned all these, you know, because people were willfully trying to do that. But when you've got good training data, you know, that can make a big difference. And then the other thing you have to do is you have to build redundancy into the system. So, you know, there's, there's a, 
famous business professor named James Reason who has this, what they call the Swiss cheese model. And the idea is that if you take a block of Swiss cheese and you slice it into thin slices, there might be a hole in one or two slices, but the holes don't go all the way through the Swiss cheese. And so if you think about the NC3 system as layers, like slices of Swiss cheese, you might have an error in one slice or one layer but it doesn't go all the way through such that by virtue of it not going all the way through, you don't have that ultimate, you know, miscalculation, accidental, you know, detonation because the redundancy in the system checks the system. And that that to me, I think, is also a, an important part of it, which sort of gets at what you're talking about. So uh, my thoughts here are is that this bill uh, it does a number of things. It, it, first of all, it it seeks to conflate first strike and second strike. It doesn't differentiate these things, and this is a challenge here because no one's. I think no one is advocating that uh, that AI should be allowed to initiate a nuclear war. But what we're think, well, our talk here and our thought process is, is that AI can help in the retaliation in the second strike. That is, in fact the deterrent threat that is withheld. And so per the theory, it must have credibility. And if the adversary believes that it can simply just kill off the decision makers before they ever have a chance to make a decision, and then therefore the American system of retribution is somehow frozen because there's no one there to make the, to, to give the order, then they can essentially uh, win with the first strike, which is why I, I argue that this incentivizes uh, a first strike. And I say that because if the adversary believes that there is absolutely no way they can stop an order of retaliation, therefore they will die too. That is the essence of making sure that the deterrence will work. And if, in, if, in, if a human on the loop, which means a human may abort an action, is enough to gonculate all of this massive amount of information that comes in first and that you have to use as, 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 as uh, Adam was saying that we, we go from detect, decide and direct to decide, detect and direct. We're essentially saying that in an autonomous, which isn't even the right word in an automated system that is, as you say, properly cured and, and informed, and then it is given all of the pre-decisions, what we call advanced decisions, which we as human beings do all the time. Who of our listeners don't have a living will, right? The whole idea of a living will is to make life, uh, life pending decisions, not while you're sick and under the stress of all of that, but making them when you're calm and informed, and then having a legal document that says, this is what you will do if I'm in this situation. This is essentially the same thing. And utilizing the, the human on the loop AI process to actually execute the system so that regardless of whether or not the, the, the senior decision maker that is used, uh, that, is, that is the decision maker, whether it's the president or someone else, that in the end... Uh, he's already, he or she's already made that decision. 
That decision was made when they've been informed by multiple war games and scenarios, and uh, and they've already made that decision so that if the situation matches a scenario, the system knows how to react because you've already told it what to do with the advanced directive. The human is in the loop that's in that sense or on the loop. And you can always abort if you decide that's not what you want to do at the last minute. But the but to not entertain any AI in a situation that is the most precious, the most stressful, uh, to me, it doesn't make sense. It's folly. And it encourages rather than discourages an adversarial first strike. Jim? Yeah, and I, I, I'd also say the, the other piece is we tend to lo- lump all of AI into one group and we have this hysteria about it. So even in the first strike scenario, there are many applications of artificial intelligence that help us make the best and appropriate decision by sorting out the information that's coming in. And again, that makes us better at averting a war accidentally, um, as well as providing a deterrent to our adversaries that know that we will make a deliberate, well thought out and uh, appropriate uh, response to anything that's done. And so I, I agree on that side. I just, uh, again, I like, I like the argument of the uh, human in the loop. Um, that piece is there, but I think I, I don't see anyone really advocating for that piece but I see a human in a loop. I want to just say that this one more time is a decision point where the human steps in. And we do this all the time as well. When that bombardier opens that Bombay and hits that button. Yeah. There was a human in the loop, but once that bomb is dropping, it's dropping, it, it's done. And there's a point at which that human made that decision. And we're all okay with that. And our, you know, we have to be in warfare. And the, the, the other thing I'll add, because we're running out of time, is that, you know, there's this expectation that when we, you know, we talk AI and we're, we're thinking of this almost like godlike figure that is AI. And that's not really what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about a system of systems with lots of little machine learning algorithms embedded across it to speed it up. But in the end... All that system has to do is it has to be 0.1% better than whatever we have now for it to be superior. And so this idea that, well, is your system perfect and is it always going to get it right? That's sort of a false uh, argument because can you say the same thing about the system we now have? Because I, I, I hear so many times, I mean, during the Trump administration, I heard a lot of folks, the last thing we want to do is, is, you know, let Donald Trump, you know, have his finger on the button. So if you don't want the humans making the decision, then, you know, why are you opposed to the dispassionate programmed, you know, uh, algorithm making the decision? So somebody's got to make the decision. And if you don't it like the humans like- doing it. It does. It smells like a standard sort of political hypocrisy here in that regard. I just wish the bill would have been less constraining in saying, no, you won't, rather than I think the bill would have been better off saying, uh, if you do, here are some limits 
or you will consult with Congress before you put in action or things like that. But rather than just whole, just take a cleaver to the whole idea and, uh, and throw it away again, we, we cannot deter by telling the adversary things we will not do. Yeah. This is part of the challenge of the regulatory state where, you know, Congress passes a big, broad, overarching bill and then the regulatory agencies go create chaos with, you know, with their, you know, bureaucratic level imposition of these crazy regulations. So it's, you know, it's part of a larger problem. Jim, I'll let you have the last word. All right. Well, here I go. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, we want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Nuclear View. Uh, I think it was entertaining. At least uh, it was a great conversation. I don't know what you guys think, but I enjoyed it. And so thanks to you, the listeners, and as always, we encourage you to think deterrence. Thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. Now, we are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We do occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. Again, that's asknids, one word, the at symbol, at thinkdeterrence.com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear knowledge, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.